Our text for this morning comes to us from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 5. The verses 17 to 20 form a unit, but there's far too much to say in those words for one sermon, and so I've broken it over two sermons. Last week we dealt with the verses 17 through 20, 17 and 18 rather, and this morning we'll focus on 19 and 20, but we'll read again from verse 17, where at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And after the proclamation of God's, uh, after the proclamation of God's word, let's sing together from Psalm 78, stanza 3. And I might remind you, brothers and sisters, of the context of the text that I'm dealing with this morning. The Lord, in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, is going to give an interpretation to the commandments of God. And he's going to give a radically different interpretation than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's going to give a radically different application of the Ten Commandments. And the Lord Jesus, all-knowing, realizes that his radical new interpretation, it's not really a new one, it's the old one, but his radically different interpretation and his radically different application of God's law was going to cause some to say, Jesus, you are annulling the law of God. You are unfaithful. You are unorthodox. And therefore, at the very beginning, before he begins to expound on various commandments and apply them, the Lord Jesus ensures that his audience knows that he is unswervingly loyal to the law of God. He is not departing an inch from the commandments of God laid down in the Old Testament. He wants that to be very, very clear to his audience. And so that's our theme for this morning again, same as last week. Jesus asserts his unwavering loyalty to the moral principles laid down in the Old Testament scriptures. And last week we saw two things, and we're going to deal with them very briefly this morning, just as a way of reminder or for benefit of those who weren't here, just very briefly touch on those two points that we dealt with last week. And those two points were, first of all, the fulfillment of the law in the lives of Christ's disciples, and then the permanence of the law 
until heaven and earth pass away. And then we're going to focus more fully on the following two points, the teaching of the law and one's place in God's kingdom and the obedience of the law that must exceed the superficial. So we're first going to look at the fulfillment of the law in the lives of the disciples. The Lord Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we saw last time, you might remember, that when we, when we come across the term law and the prophets, then the Lord Jesus is giving a summary for the Old Testament. I said to you, the, the Old Testament was divided into three parts. There was the Torah, the law, there was the prophets, the Nevi'im, and there were the, the writings, the Ketuvim. And for the Jews, they called their Bible the Tanakh. And basically, that's what the Lord Jesus is saying here. He says, don't think that I have come to abolish the, the moral code of the Old Testament. I haven't come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. And you might remember as well that we spend some time trying to understand what the Lord Jesus meant by those words, that I have come to fulfill them. Because we saw there were two ways they could be understood. They could understand those words to mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law himself in his own person as our legal representative. And so he would render perfect obedience to all of God's commandments all his life long, and he would obtain righteousness and impute that righteousness to us. That's the way some interpret this part of the Bible. And as we saw, that is the truth. That is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. But we said that in this text, that's not what the Lord Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the obedience which he himself rendered to God's law for us. But you might remember, we said Jesus is talking here about the righteousness of the law, the fulfillment of the law, the obedience of the law, which Christ would work in us. So we're not talking here about, if you want some big terms, we're not talking about the doctrine of justification here. That's not what the Lord Jesus is talking about. He's talking about our sanctification. He's talking not about the, the righteousness which he would render for us, but rather the righteousness which he would work in us. And we took as, an, as a commentary on Jesus' words, the words of Paul in Romans 8. And I'll read that with you because I think that's a helpful text that gives us a good understanding of what the Lord Jesus says. Paul says there in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, he says, What the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And so there, the Apostle Paul is talking about the law, and he says God gave to his people the law, but the law was not able to break man free from that tenacious grip that sin had on man. Man was totally in the grip of sin, as it were, totally under the power of sin, and God gave his commandments to his people, but that law was not able to break free that tenacious grip which sin had on man. The, the law was powerless to set man free from his bondage to sin. 
And that's because of the horrible corruption that man endured. And so what God did was he sent his son into the flesh as a man and through his suffering and his atoning sacrifice, Christ Jesus broke the powerful grip which sin had on us. And he did that. He condemned sin in the flesh. That means he condemned the power of sin in the flesh. He destroyed the power of sin in the flesh. Why? So that the righteous requirements of God's law might be fulfilled in us. In order that through his spirit he might enable us to fulfill the law of God in our own persons, in our own lives. So that we would no longer walk according to our old corrupt nature, but that we would walk according to the new nature. And these last words are a nice commentary of what our Lord means when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to push the law away as if it's no longer relevant or pertinent to your life. He says, I have come in order that the law might be fulfilled in you. I have come to fulfill the law of God in your lives, to bring the law of God to its expression in your lives. That's what we saw in our first point last week. Then we went on and talked about the permanence of the law until heaven and earth pass away. The Lord Jesus said, I tell you the truth, amen, he said literally, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, which is the letter yote, and not the least stroke of a pen, which is called the tittle, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And you remember we said the yote was like that little apostrophe. If we say dad's book, the book from dad, then we use that little tiny apostrophe, a little raised comma. That's the yote in the Hebrew alphabet. It's the tiniest little letter. There was the tittle. It was a little mark that was added to, to a letter just to distinguish it from another letter. Remember we talked about the letter T the lowercase t and the lower, lowercase f. How do you distinguish a t from an f? Well, it's got a little tiny hook on the top, and that's a tittle, the tiny little stroke of the pen. And Jesus said, not the tiniest letter of the law will by any means fade away and become obsolete. Not the tiniest little stroke of the pen from the law will by any means disappear. As long as this world exists, and we said it's going to exist forever, Although we will have a renewed earth, a cleansed earth, a purified earth, the earth and the heavens will remain. And so God's law will forever remain, we saw. God's law will ever be valid. It will ever be the moral rule for the life of God's people, even on the new earth. Only the law of God won't be written on stone and it won't be written on paper but it'll be written on our hearts and so also in paradise restored we will be living according to the law of God we will be honoring God's name not blaspheming him we will not be worshiping him by images we will not be worshiping another God we will be honoring the authorities that God has we'll we'll be loving not hating we'll be supporting life not killing we'll We'll be faithful in every way, and so we will, in a way, fulfill the law of God for all eternity. And the reason why we said 
the law was eternal is because the law arises out of who God is. The law of God arises out of the perfections and the qualities and the work of our God. Why does God come to us and say, you shall not kill? It's because God is a God of love. Why does he say you shall not kill? Because I, God is a God of life. Why does he say in the seventh commandment you shall not commit adultery? Why do you have to be faithful in your marriage? Because God is faithful in his marriage towards us. Why does he say you shall not steal? Because God says I am the provider and I give to every person precisely what he needs, when he needs it, in perfect measure. Why do you have to tell the truth and not bear false witness? Because God is a God of truth. And so all of God's commandments arise out of who God is and all of what God does. And that's why it will be eternal. God created us in his image. God wrote his law, as it were, on our hearts. His perfections were imprinted on us. And so in paradise, we would have kept God's law, even though it wasn't written on paper or stone. And for all eternity, we will bear God's image, which means we'll be living in conformity with the moral code that he laid down in Scripture. That's what we saw in our second point. The third point that we want to focus more deeply on this morning is the teaching of the law and one's place in God's kingdom. Jesus says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I might take issue with the word break here. I think it could be better translated as to, to, to set aside, to annul, to, to invalidate. Jesus is talking here about someone who invalidates the law of God. Says, basically, he says, we don't have to keep that commandment anymore because it's not valid for us in our time. For example, we're, we're experiencing this where people are invalidating the law of God today in, in broader Christianity. There are people who say, well, yes, it does say that the, the woman must not exercise ruling authority over a man, and therefore women should not be put into office. But that was a law that was given at, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in Paul's day, but that's, that's outdated. We're, we're living in the time of woman's emancipation from that servile position which she had. She's been raised to her rightful place of honor and glory, and therefore we who have come to this modern age of equality of women, we, we know that that law is no longer relevant for us, and so they nicely set aside that law. There's laws that in the, in the scripture that forbid homosexuality, and people say, well, that was just a social, a, a social taboo at the time when the Bible was written. And so Paul is writing in the context of his day and the Old Testament as well. But today we know that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality. And therefore, those words which are written in the scripture, those commands, those are outdated. They're, they're not relevant for us anymore in our modern age. That is a person who has invalidated the law of the Lord our God. He has set aside the law of the Lord our God. So that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments 
And you notice here that he's teaching others, uh, he's talking about the people here who teach others to do the same. And it seems to me then that what the people that Jesus is addressing here in the first place are those who are given leadership roles. He has in mind, no doubt, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's going to mention them in the next verse. And no doubt he has his disciples who are gathered around him on the mount. He has them in mind. These are the disciples who are going to become the leaders and the pillars of the church in a little while. And no doubt then by extension we could say the Lord Jesus is addressing here the elders of the church and the ministers of the church and the professors of theology in the theological college. The leaders of the church are called to uphold the law of God. And of course they are to do so in two ways. They are to do so by their own example. They must set a good example by living themselves in accordance with God's law. And secondly, they must instruct God's people to live in a way that pleases God. And notice that in this verse here, he says, he who breaks one of the least of these laws. And so the Lord Jesus distinguishes between some of the greater commandments and some of the, the lesser commandments. And, and that is certainly true. In the Old Testament, there were some sins which were very grievous sins. There were sins like murder, rape, blasphemy, worshiping other gods. Those were capital crimes which required the capital punishment, which meant it meant death. If you worshiped another god, if you blasphemed god, if you raped, if you murdered, you were to be put to death. But there were other laws which were lesser commandments, if you will. And if you committed sins against these commandments, the punishment was lesser. If you stole, that's bad. But if you stole, you would be punished by having to repay what you stole and add 20% to it. And so there was a different punishment because there was different severity in the disobedience. There's difference, different kinds of commandments. There are some very great commandments. There are also some lesser commandments. Now, Jesus here is talking about the least of the commandments, the very least, the very, the very bottom of, of the list, you might say, of, of, of importance. And he utters a stern warning, and he says, whoever sets aside or annuls or invalidates even the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's very clear that our Lord Jesus Christ upholds the standard of perfection. Good enough is not good enough with God. Sometimes you come across people who, who think that they will be admitted into heaven. And, and if you ask them, why, on what basis will you be admitted into the kingdom of heaven? And they say, well, I've done pretty good. I haven't committed any major sins. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't, I haven't committed adultery. I, I, I haven't, and then the list goes on of what they haven't done, the big things that they haven't done. And so I'm, I'm a pretty good person. And they think as long as they get over the 50% average, well, they'll be admitted into the kingdom of heaven. But our Lord Jesus Christ says he upholds the, the, the rule of perfection. He demands obedience not just to the big things in life, but he also demands obedience in the little things of life. 
He upholds the demand of absolute perfection. He never lowers the standard. Not even in things that we perceive to be not so serious. The courting couple, they must never think that as long as we abstain from going all the way, it's okay. If, if we commit some minor improprieties in our relationship, well, that's not so bad. As long as we don't go all the way, that's the big sin. The little sins don't really matter. Employees might think, well, if we pinch something from work, that's not a real big issue, as long as we don't steal something big. Or citizens might suppose that if they, if they fudge a little on the income tax statement, maybe they're claiming something that they really didn't buy, or, or, or maybe they're diminishing their taxable income a little bit, not claiming everything that they earned. Well, as long as it's not too much, it's okay. That's the way we sometimes think. We think as long as we don't commit the big sins, we're all right. But Jesus says, whoever breaks even the least of my commandments and teaches men to do likewise will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And it's also clear from this text that the way one applies the commandments of God in his life and the way that people teach others to apply the commandments is going to affect their status in the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we think that in the kingdom of heaven everyone's going to be equal in the sense of everyone's going to receive the same kind of reward or in hell everybody's going to receive the same kind of punishment. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what our text says either. The way you fulfill the commandments in your life is going to affect your status in the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Lord Jesus says. Anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices them and does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now that doesn't mean and I want that to be clear. It doesn't mean that the reward which we receive, whether it's great or, or less, that doesn't mean that that reward is earned or merited. That has to be crystal clear in your mind. Don't want you walking out of here and saying, ah, oh, Fendelton's a heretic. He says that our status in heaven is, is dependent on, on the meritorious works which we do. No, our works are not meritorious. The reward that is given to us is entirely a matter of grace, simply because even the best works which we do are defiled with sin and therefore merit nothing. And even more, the works which we do, they're not our doing. If we do some good work, if we render obedience to God's commandment, it's not us who do it, it is God who is at work in us, enabling us both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And so, God would only be rewarding his own works, and so we don't merit anything by the good things that we do. And yet the truth is there. The one who sets aside the least of the commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever upholds the law of God will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
God's reward is meted out according to the way that we apply God's commandments in this life. And one thing has to be clear, beloved, is that our Lord Jesus Christ radically upholds the law of the Lord our God. He is extreme in his call for obedience. He teaches us to strive for moral excellence, for ethical perfection. We have to strive to be perfect because our God is perfect. And so it must be clear also to those who are appointed as elders in the church that we can't set aside the, the little yotes in the tittles of God's law. We, we, can't be, we can't turn a blind eye to some of the, the little things that people are doing wrong. We can't, at the, we can't wink, rather, at those little sins and, and just overlook them. We must teach God's law in all its purity, in all its depth commanding God's people not just to keep the big parts of God's commandments, but also the little. In this respect, the obedience which Christ Jesus required, the righteousness which he demanded, was far, far more, it far exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that is our last point. The obedience of the law must exceed the superficial. It's sadly ironic that the scribes and the Pharisees who were going to accuse Jesus of breaking the law were themselves guilty of failing to fulfill the law. Although they would never have said so themselves. They regarded themselves as being very righteous. You only have to think of Luke 18 about that proud Pharisee who considered himself righteous. And it must be said that these scribes and the Pharisees, these teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they looked righteous. They appeared to men as being righteous. Je Jesus said that in Matthew 23. He said, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but inside you are full of hypocrisy. Your outward appearance, your outward persona, oh, it looks so shining and squeaky clean, but... I know, says Jesus, what you do behind closed doors. I know what you are doing in secret. You are hypocrites. You are filled with wickedness in your private life. The scribes and the Pharisees preached righteousness, but they failed to do what they preached. They failed to practice what they preached. Jesus said to his disciples, yes, you must obey your leaders. You must obey the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And you must do everything they tell you. Yes. But do not do what they do. Don't follow their example because they don't themselves practice what they preach. They, they tie up heavy loads on men's shoulders, which means they come with heavy demands. You have to do this and you have to do that and that and that and that. And these people are being weighted down with a heavy burden of, of God's love. God, I've got far too much and I can't do it. They tie heavy burdens on men's back, but they themselves, who are so strong and powerful, they could, of course, themselves lift it with one finger, but they don't, says Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were frauds. They put on a mask of righteousness while being decidedly evil. Jesus said, you scribes and Pharisees, you devour widows' houses. 
And for a pretense, you make long prayers. You can just imagine. Here, the scribes and the Pharisees, they've got a bit of money. They've been able to buy up mortgages from poor widows whose husbands have died. They've got no source of income, these widows. They have to sell their house. And, of course, they, they sell it at a tremendous loss. And the scribes, the Pharisees, come with their wallets. They buy the house. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, I've just bought your house. I guess you're going to have to move out onto the street. And, of course, they say, but before we go, I'd like to have a prayer with you. I'd like to pray, please, Lord, will you provide this poor widow with housing? Sounds good on the outside, but Jesus says, you hypocrites, you devour widows' houses. And then for a pretense, in order to put on appearance, you make long prayers, you hypocrites. Oh, the scribes and the Pharisees were punctilious in obeying lesser commandments. But they neglected all the weightier matters of the law. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You can just see the, the scribes and the Pharisees, can't you? They, they take out their, their bag of mint leaves. They've, they, they, they've harvested the mint, right? And, and, and they've got a, a few of them in a little bag, and they say, one mint leaf for the Lord, two mint leaves for the Lord, eight mint leaves for the Lord, nine mint leaves for the Lord, or, or um, rather for me, and one for the Lord. And then those little tiny seeds of common, well, one, two, three, nine for me, and one for the Lord. And they felt so righteous. We have kept the law of the Lord God. While at the same time they neglected all the weightier matters. Justice, fairness, mercy and compassion, faithfulness. Oh yes, they appeared very pious on the outside. But their hearts, they were extremely corrupt. Jesus said, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs. You are like graves. You are like coffins where there is the dead man's bones unclean. You, oh, you look so good on the outside, but inside your heart there is hypocrisy and wickedness. Oh, yes, and they would come, they would pretend to worship the Lord in, in church, as it were. And Jesus says again, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied of you. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And their righteousness, well, it consisted of obedience to man-made laws, which they multiplied. And Jesus says, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And the whole purpose of this display of righteousness, this whole purpose for, for their worship was in order that they might receive glory by men. When they blew the, or sorry, when they gave their charitable gifts, the collection bag or the plate would come around. Well, they would first sound the trumpet, da, 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 and then come, would come the bag, and they would make a big pretense of getting their wallet out and flipping through a few, and oh, a $100 bill. Oh, uh, I guess I will put the $100 bill in a little bit, see it, everyone, and, and slip it in. Hope everybody saw it. Hope nobody didn't see. Hope no one missed the fact that I just put in a huge amount in the, in the collection plate. And when they prayed, they prayed these long, pretentious prayers. Oh, they had a wonderful vo spiritual vocabulary. They could string sentences together. They made those prayers sound so wonderful and so pious. 
was all done just so that men could see what they were doing. Such was the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that, unless it surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. We need a righteousness that far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, what kind of righteousness then do we need, beloved? And again, there's two ways of interpreting this text. There's, there are those who say that, well, what Jesus here is telling us is we need to receive the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We said earlier, our Lord Jesus Christ came to earth as a man, and as our legal substitute, he fulfilled all the commandments of God's law. And he did that for us in our place, and now we believe that we have to reach out with the hands of our soul and we have to embrace Christ Jesus. We have to ask him for his righteousness. And if we do, if we embrace Christ in faith, his righteousness is imputed to us. It's reckoned to our account. That, that's, that's true. Jesus, look, God looks at our account and he says, Oh, Vandelden, you have never broken any of God's commandments because it's all been paid by Christ. And, and as far as your obedience, you have kept all of God's commandments because I share in the righteousness of Christ by faith. And that's so comforting. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The Lord Jesus Christ is not talking about the righteousness of Christ, which we need. We do need that. There's no way that anyone will enter into the kingdom of heaven without having that righteousness of Christ imputed to him. And we can't render that perfect righteousness ourselves, which is worthy of salvation. And so we have to go to Christ. We have to embrace him in faith. We have to receive his righteousness and have it imputed to us as our own. But that's not the righteousness that the Lord Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the imputed righteousness. That's necessary, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about our own personal righteousness. Jesus is saying, unless your own personal righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. We must possess righteousness, beloved, in our own lives. There must be obedience to God's law in our own lives. And that becomes very clear, especially when we we look at the opposite. Jesus said, do you not know that the, or the, that's actually Paul that said it, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you live an unrighteous life, if you are living an immoral life, don't be deceived and think that you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Paul writes something similar in Galatians 5. It must be a, a common problem in the New Testament church that people thought they might still enter the kingdom of God because, well, they get the righteousness of Christ. And because we have the righteousness of Christ, we don't need any personal righteousness. 
And so Paul has to confront that error time and again. He says in Galatians, the acts of the sinful man are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, he said, that those who live like this will not enter the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus says in his revelation to John, he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have a right to the tree of life and go into the city gates. Outside of the city, outside of the new Jerusalem, are the dogs. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It must be clear to you, beloved, that there is no place for, for sinners who continue to live immoral lives through their life, there is no place for them in the kingdom of God. And what am I saying then? Am I saying that, that somehow our entrance into the kingdom of heaven is based on our obedience to God's law? Absolutely not. I want it very clear in your minds that the personal righteousness which is required by God for entering into the kingdom of God in no way is the basis for our entry. And I have that underlined and put in bold print in, in my manuscript here. This personal righteousness in no way forms the basis for our entry into God's eternal kingdom. The only basis for our entrance into God's eternal kingdom is the righteousness of Christ. But you need to understand, beloved, that there is no one who receives the righteousness of Christ imputed to him who does not also have the right personal righteousness in his own life. No one receives the obedience of Christ without receiving the spirit of Christ who transforms our lives so that we live sanctified lives, holy lives. We who have been, who share in the righteousness of Christ also share in the renewing of the spirit so that we live sanctified lives. And so the, the message must be clear, what our Lord Jesus is saying. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, if it doesn't exceed the superficial, if it doesn't arise out of a sincere heart, then it's not acceptable to God. And if what you're doing is just Sunday worship, while the rest of your life you're living in immorality, then don't be deceived. You will not enter into the kingdom of God. And what is this righteousness then that we, we need to be rendering to God? How would you describe this obedience that God requires of us? Well, our catechism serves us very well. You might remember the Lord's Day, what are good works? First of, those, first of all, those arise from true faith. That arise from the depth of the heart, out of love for God. Not out of showmanship or, 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 or a facade. And those which are done according to the law of God. Not according to what we think is right and wrong. Not, not according to what we think is important or unimportant, but according to what God's law says. And those works which are done for the glory of God, not for man's own glory. Those works are required which are sincere 
and authentic and heartfelt and God-glorifying obedience. And so, beloved, examine your lives to see whether or not you see the evidence of Christ working in you. It's not enough to say, Christ has done this for me. Christ never does anything for us without doing something in us. He never gives us his righteousness without also making us to be a righteous people. And so it's vitally important, beloved, that we examine ourselves. Because on that last day, there are going to be those who say, Lord, Lord, didn't I come to church every Sunday? At least once. And didn't I contribute something into the collection bag each Sunday? And didn't I support the school? Didn't I send my children there? Didn't I, didn't I pay my school tuitions? And didn't I this and didn't I that? And the Lord Jesus will say, I, I don't know you. And be gone. Depart from me, you wicked. And so it's vitally important, then, beloved, that we examine ourselves to see whether or not, through the power of the indwelling Christ, we are living in righteousness. For nothing would be more sad than to have people deluded, thinking that they are on their way to heaven, when in reality they are on their way to hell. So examine yourselves, beloved. See whether you, through the power of the indwelling Christ, are producing those good fruits which are necessary. That's the reason why the Lord Jesus came into this world. He didn't just come to save us from hell, but he made us, he came in order to make us fit for heaven, that we might do good works now already and for all eternity. Amen.